Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 878. As we have turned the corner and started down the home stretch of Luke's story, Jesus has arrived in the city of Jericho, which is the last stop before finally getting to Jerusalem. And this morning, Jesus is going to offer a correction of sorts, of false expectations of what he's going to do when he gets to Jerusalem, as he gives what is most commonly known as the parable of the ten minas. So we're in Luke chapter 19, and we're going to pick up beginning in verse 11. It says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And so again, last week we read about Jesus' encounters with the blind man, with Zacchaeus, in the city of Jericho. And in verse 10, Jesus emphasized that the, the point of his life and ministry is to seek and save the lost, which we saw can include people that we might naturally think would be excluded. And now as we pick up again here in verse 11, Luke tells us that as the crowd was listening to what Jesus had to say, he went on to tell them another parable. And just as a reminder, a parable is a kind of story that uses common, everyday situations to point to and, and to illustrate larger spiritual truths. As a, a parable is an earthy story with a heavenly purpose. And it's important for us to notice that Luke actually explains why Jesus gives this parable, which is something that he doesn't usually do. But if you look in the second half of verse 11, Luke says that he did this because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. In other words, even though Jesus has told his disciples that things are not going to go well when they get to Jerusalem, that the crowd at, at large is still convinced that when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he is going to initiate a rebellion overthrow the Roman Empire, and establish God's kingdom on earth. And they think it's all about to go down right now. And we can understand that expectation on one level. As, as we've seen before, when the, when the Old Testament prophets talk ab about the coming Messiah, they, they tend to talk about the person and the work of the Messiah as a whole. Right? So they say the Messiah is going to come. God's going to judge his enemies. He's going to save his people. And he's going to make all things new. But the reality, as Jesus has already indicated, is that while all of this is going to happen, it's not all going to happen at one time. 
And so this parable is intended to be a correction to the false expectation of the crowd if the crowd has ears to hear and understand. And so in verse 12, Jesus begins the parable by introducing a nobleman who travels to a far country in order to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And what this is getting at is that oftentimes in the Roman Empire, a a king or a governor-to-be would go to Rome to be, uh, to be authorized or endorsed by the emperor in person uh, before coming back and actually beginning their rule. And so this is what's happening here. This nobleman is going to Rome to be coronated before he actually uh, takes the throne. Now, for the purposes of the parable, we aren't told how long this would take. Uh, But it would seem to be a fair amount of time because before the nobleman leaves, he calls ten of his servants and he gives them each a mina. Now, a mina is a unit of money that was roughly equivalent to about a hundred days worth of wages for for a common laborer at the time. So this isn't a fortune, but it's not chump change either. This is a, a significant amount of money. And the nobleman tells each of the servants to engage in business until he comes back. Buy, sell, trade, invest. He wants them to take this money and make it grow. So the nobleman leaves his servants in charge of his finances as he heads out of town. And then in verse 14, we get a small but very significant side note that the citizens of the country hate the man. And they do not want him to be in charge over them. And in fact, they go so far as to send a delegation of representatives behind the man. Uh, to to go to the emperor and appeal to to give them somebody else besides this man. And so this introduces a bit of tension to the story. We'll find out what happens next as we pick up again, beginning in verse 15. It says, When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, Because you are a severe man, you take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten mina. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And so as we pick up again in verse 15, the nobleman returns having received the the kingdom for himself. And so we see that the delegation of haters was unsuccessful. And so 
when he gets back home, he calls for his servants to come and to give an account of the way that they handled his money while he was gone. And so the first servant comes and reveals that he has been able to make ten minas more, which is a thousand percent profit. The master commends the servant for his faithfulness and, and recognizes the principle that we saw in the parable of the dishonest manager back in chapter 16, which is that someone who is faithful with small matters will be faithful with larger matters as well. And so as a reward, the master gives this servant authority to rule over ten cities. Right? So that this king is in charge of the entire kingdom, but he needs people that he knows he can trust to have local jurisdictions. And so he sets this man uh, as, as the, uh, the leader over ten cities of the kingdom. Uh, and then the second servant comes and reveals that he's been able to make five minas, which is still an impressive increase. And the master commends him for his faithfulness and gives him authority to rule over five cities in the kingdom. And this is interesting to me, at least, because a good job that is done over, again, a, a relatively a moderate amount of money leads to a significant amount of reward, right? being given charge over multiple cities. And this is quite a jump. And what we see here is that this master is generous to those who are faithful and prove loyal to him. Well, then in verse 20, a third servant comes and simply offers the original mina back as he reveals that he's done nothing. He simply hid his mina in a piece of cloth. And in verse 21, he tries to explain his action or his lack of action by saying that he was afraid of the master and accusing him of being a severe man, meaning that he's, he's demanding. He has, he's someone who has, has really high and, and possibly even unrealistic expectations of people. And so uh, he's, he's afraid of, of doing the wrong thing, and so that he simply hid his minus so that it didn't get lost or stolen. Now, what are we to make of this? this is, I, I think this is a lame excuse. There's nothing in the parable to suggest that this characterization of the master is true. The other servants don't seem to have this, this perspective. And then furthermore, the master himself pokes holes in this servant's excuse in verse 22 as he responds that he will condemn this wicked servant with his own words. In other words, the master catches the servant contradicting himself. He says, if, if that's true, if what you've said is, is really what you think about me, then the least you could have done was put the mina in the bank, which would have kept it much safer than simply being hidden in a piece of cloth. You wouldn't have had to take any risk or put in any effort at all, and then it would have earned some interest while I was gone. But you didn't even do that, which proves that that's really not the issue, right? And, and in one sense, you get the idea that it would have even been better if the servant had lost the mina by some, some type of bad business decision, because then at least he could say that he tried. But as it is, he didn't do anything. And so the problem isn't that the servant was afraid because the master has unrealistic expectations. The problem is that the servant is lazy and irresponsible. So this third servant has his mina taken away. And the master has it given to the servant who has ten minas. And, and at first, the people who are standing there protest. They say, Master, he already has ten minas. And he doesn't need any more. 
But then the master explains that to those who have, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. In other words, those who are productive for him will be rewarded with yet more. And those who are not productive will be penalized of the little bit that they do have. And then at the very end of the parable, the master turns his attention towards the people who had rejected his authority over them, who had sent this delegation to protest his rule. And he tells them, he calls for his enemies uh, to be rounded up and then slaughtered in judgment. Again, by all appearances, these are people who are going to resist his leadership. They will probably try to undermine his authority, possibly even have him assassinated. And so the, the master deals with them by having them put to death as a result of their defiance. And so as we look to interpret this parable, keeping in mind that parables are not allegories, so not every element of the story has, has significant meaning, Luke's explanation in verse 11 enables us to understand it fairly easily. Right? This crowd is expecting Jesus to establish the kingdom when he arrives in Jerusalem. But in this parable, Jesus reveals and indicates that he first has to go away and receive authority over the kingdom before coming back again to establish his reign. Of course, we know this is referring to his ascension back to heaven after his resurrection. This is what we read about in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul explains that in light of Jesus' humility and being willing to come to earth in the form of a servant, he says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then later in Ephesians, Paul says that God raised Jesus from the dead and then seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet. And so Jesus has now received authority to rule over every nation, tribe, and tongue, both in heaven and on earth, and one day he is going to return to establish his kingdom for all eternity. Now, despite the fact that Jesus is the one true Lord over all things, there are a significant number of people who reject his authority over them, who refuse to submit their lives to him, in fact, in, in terms of the story, in only a matter of days, the Jewish leadership will explicitly reject Jesus as their king when they have the opportunity to embrace him. We'll read about that in a couple of weeks. But over the centuries, many, many people have joined in in this rebellion of, of opposing the lordship of Jesus Christ over all the earth. And at times, even actively oppose him through persecuting his church. And Jesus warns through this parable that those people will ultimately be destroyed in judgment. And of course, that, that imagery of, of slaughter, a very graphic, very vivid picture of, of the reality of eternal judgment. And it's sometimes a, a hard pill for some people to swallow, a difficult reality for people to accept. But as we look around at the, the craziness that characterizes our world, 
we have to remember that everything that is wrong, everything that hurts, everything that causes suffering in our lives ultimately comes back to the effects and the presence of sin. And because God is loving, he is eventually going to rid the, all, all of existence from every trace of sin, which includes those who, who cause it. In, in the same way that if someone was trying to hurt your family, you might warn them and even beg them to stop several times before you actually use lethal force to do what needed to be done. In, in the same way, God has sent Jesus to die for us, and he now calls us through the gospel to be forgiven and reconciled to him through faith in what Jesus has done for us. But eventually, he will judge those who persist in sin. The Lord is, is patient and merciful in offering us the opportunity to be reconciled to him. But if we are bound and determined to hold on to our sin and to continue in rebellion against him, then we will face his judgment in the end. This then leads us to the servants in the parable who have been left with the responsibility of engaging in business while the master is gone. And this raises the question, if, if the church, if we are the servants of the master, then what is it that the Lord has given to us, his people, to do business with? Well, he's given us the gospel message, yes? Paul refers to Timothy to the gospel with which he had been entrusted. And, and he later talks to the Corinthians and tells them that we hold the treasure of the gospel message in jars of clay. I think we could also say that it includes the, the spiritual gifts and the resources that God has given to us for the purposes of, of building up uh, the faith in other believers in the church, encouraging one another. And as we've seen previously, the Lord will reward us in heaven for the way that we have been faithful in this life. We will have treasure in heaven. In fact, we see in this parable that the Lord's rewards for our faithfulness will far outweigh the actual value of anything that we've done in this life. Now, there's a lot of debate over what happens to the third servant. And there's the question of, of whether or not he simply loses his reward as a servant or uh, is, is he actually cast out of the kingdom as an enemy. And on the one hand, the servant is not identified specifically as an enemy in the parable, but in Matthew 22, a very similar parable, the wicked servant is cast out of the kingdom into utter darkness in an act of judgment, and that could be the case here as well. At the end of the day, it's hard to know with certainty which interpretation is correct, but really, if I may, I would like to suggest to you that whichever one is, is the reality, the point is you don't want to be that guy, right? Whether it's really, really bad or just really bad, you don't want either one of those, right? We do not want to be the servant who's been found negligent when our master returns. And so uh, Jesus leaves the crowd with this parable as he makes his way to Jerusalem. And so in our passage this morning, Jesus gives a parable to correct the, the false expectations that many have of him as he gets to Jerusalem and to encourage the proper perspective that we should have as his disciples until he comes back to establish his kingdom. And so first things first, have you 
submitted your life to the one true king? Have you come to the point where you recognize your sin and you recognize what God has done to save you from your sin through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? And have you responded to the gospel by trusting in that, by by giving up any hopes of, of being good enough on your own and simply relying on what Jesus has done for you to make you right with God? If not, then you must understand the reality of final judgment. And I would invite you to to consider what God offers us through Jesus and trust in what he has done for us even today. But for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, the question for each of us this morning is, are we cultivating what the Lord has given to us? How's how's business, to use the wording of the parable? Before we say anything about anyone else, is, is the gospel growing and earning interest in your own life as you pursue spiritual maturity and Christ-likeness? Does does your faith define who you are and impact how how you live your life at work and at home and at everywhere else? Or do you compartmentalize your faith as just one aspect of who you are? Is the deposit of the gospel growing and bearing interest through you as you seek to promote the faith of other believers in the membership of our church through actively engaging in ministry and and discipleship? Is it multiplying as you share the gospel with others and invite them to receive this treasure for themselves? As we've talked about earlier in Luke, are you using your gifts and your resources to advance the kingdom? Is the mina of the gospel growing and earning interest in your life? Or have you more or less left it under a napkin without thinking much of it throughout the week? Friends, Jesus is coming back to establish his kingdom. And when he does, he will execute judgment against his enemies and he will reward those who have been faithful to him. God is merciful and gracious towards those who will seek reconciliation with him through Jesus. And he is a generous rewarder of those who faithfully engage in his mission. We have every reason to fully devote our lives to the cause of his kingdom. And so this morning, may we not fail to submit our lives to the one true king. And let each of us take the deposit of the gospel that he has given to us and work to make the most out of it that we possibly can for his glory. Let's pray together.